If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, then maybe you'd enjoy membership with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. As a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, you'll have access to the RCPE education portal and access to the evening medical updates and options to view the symposia in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, then please go on to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website for more information. Thank you. Hello, everyone. And welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations, brought to you today by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. My name is Dr. Jonathan Bargett, and I am a Registrar in Acute and General Internal Medicine in South East Scotland. And today I'm delighted to talk to you about COVID with Dr. Frauke Vidans, who's an intensive care consultant working in the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh, and Dr. Oliver Koch who's a consultant physician in infectious diseases, working in the Regional Infectious Diseases Unit. Welcome. Welcome, Dr. Vilans, and welcome, Dr. Koch. Thank you for having us on. Thanks for having us, Jonathan. It's a pleasure. So really, we're talking about COVID-19 disease in 2022. And this episode of Clinical Conversations is really about having a step back and think about where we are now. Um, just before I ask you a little bit about yourselves and what you've been doing over the last two years. I'm going to just give some stats from the BBC today saying that with, with COVID-19 and the pandemic, there have been over 17 million confirmed cases of coronavirus in the UK and 156,000 deaths at least, according to the government figures. And that's based on death certificates within 28 days of testing positive for the COVID-19 virus or the SARS-CoV-2. And so this is why we're talking about it, because it's obviously taken up our lives for the last two years. And so I just really just to get an idea from yourselves about how COVID-19 has affected you and your, your life in the last two years. Dr. Koch, could you give us a bit of an insight into what life has been like and give us an insight into just to what, what you've been doing as well? Sure. So I'm Oliver Koch. I am an infectious diseases consultant physician. I work at the Regional Infectious Diseases Unit in Edinburgh for NHS Lothian. I'm also a dad, a husband, and so and do a fair bit of sport, although I'm a, probably an average runner and cyclist. But over the last two years, uh, my life has been really dominated by COVID, as I'm sure it has been for many others. So sort of within our unit, I have taken on a Bit of a lead role together with some colleagues trying to implement many of the changes that we've experienced in our ways of working due to COVID and I'm also involved nationally in a variety of committees sort of clinic and establishing clinical guidance and COVID-19 so it has been dominating my life for the last two years no doubt about that. And the same question for you Dr Vidans. Yeah, so my name is Frauke Weidens. I'm a consultant in intensive care, but also in acute medicine in Edinburgh. I work mainly at the Western General. Um, and I guess, like Ollie, it has in many ways taken over certainly my professional life. Certainly within critical care, it has forced us to expand our footprint and treat many more patients than we normally do which then obviously results in extra shifts and so on. And equally in acute medicine, it has profoundly changed the way we work and organise the front of the hospital. So yeah, as well as all the new clinical information and adapting to all the new guidelines, etc., it has forced us to keep changing the way we work and the way we organise care. And then at the same time, 
obviously it has I guess limited many things that you would normally do so I enjoyed traveling I've friends and family abroad and while it's been lovely to be able to travel in Scotland again I've had to unfortunately put a lot of the other things on hold that I would normally do but hopefully that can all start again soon. I hope so too and it's great that we can have both of you on the podcast today to talk about how COVID-19 has changed in our patient population and how we've been treating these patients that presented with it. I'm just going to reflect back on a grand round that I attended right back at the start of the pandemic or before things really hit the ground back in March of 2020. And I remember, Dr. Cock, that you you were with Dr. Claire McIntosh talking about what was going to happen to us, talking about how to adapt our PPE usage and what we would be doing and what you were doing already for the patients that were coming back from China, having had the news from Wuhan on the 31st of December. And what are your thoughts on looking back at that? I don't know if you remember that day. And I don't know if you were there, Dr. Vadans. I was there thinking back to it. <laughs> I, I remember all of us being in a completely packed Bletcher theatre, nobody wearing a mask. And I wonder how many of us had COVID at a time. But no, joking aside, it was definitely, I remember it very well, um, because it was, I think, very clear that that was a start of something that was going to change our working lives quite profoundly. So obviously, you know, ingrained in my memory and probably will be forever, I guess we were to some extent already dealing with what was coming towards us probably for, you know, sort of six weeks prior to that and had gained a wee bit of experience, so we're perhaps slightly ahead of the game, but I guess nobody really foresaw what truly this was going to mean for all of us, not just within the healthcare sector, but for all of society. And, you know, while every infectious diseases symposium I've ever been to, you know, whenever the the keynote talk was, what's the next big thing? It was always an influenza-like illness. And so we kind of knew at some point that was going to happen, but it was going to happen in our lifetime to the extent that we've now experienced over the two years. I think nobody could have predicted at the time. I think what was clear to us at the time we gave the grand round, that this had now become a thing that could not be managed by infectious diseases alone. This was not going to be something that we could just contain in our little unit. This was now certainly something that was going to affect everybody. And that's probably the the main message I wanted to get across at the grand round. So in, in the weeks leading up to that, my inbox was so full from a variety of colleagues throughout the the hospital asking me, you know, what would this mean for my patient group and what preparation should I take? I want to give chemotherapy to these patients. Should I change that? And all of these questions. And I think the message we wanted to bring across is this is now something we all need to think about. And we all need to look after our own patient group and see how we can benefit them, how we can protect them and all need to get on board with this. And I have to say, it was amazing following that grand round. It really felt like everybody just got on with it. There was a a real spirit suddenly of togetherness and, you know, let's prepare, let's get this done. I mean, as I say, nobody really knew what was going to happen, but people really, I think, took on board that this was now serious and affecting all of us. Yeah, I remember it really well. I was finishing my MOE placement and there was a, a news 
bulletin put out that redeployment was about to happen. Um, I was due to go to the respiratory ward at a different hospital, but I was redeployed to respiratory at the same hospital. And there was a concern, a real sort of anxiety about people being redeployed to COVID wards, which I guess in context, you'd already been dealing with it. And I guess a lot of things have changed since then with research that has gone through COVID-19 disease. And we'll talk about that hopefully. But I'd just like to bring it back to a basic level about prevention and also just the basic pathophysiology of infection of COVID. And I was wondering if you could just touch on that, Dr. Cobb. Sure, certainly. So just bring it right back to the basics as to what we're actually talking about. So COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. So the name for the virus and the associated disease both gone through several iterations. We now call the virus SARS-CoV-2 or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. So as the name suggests, it's a strain of a coronavirus, which for what it's worth is a single-stranded RNA virus. It, as we alluded to, was first identified in the city of Wuhan in China in late 2019. And there's been much speculation and discussion about its origin, but I think researchers largely come down on on it being of zoonotic origin, and it has close genetic similarity to bat coronaviruses, suggesting that it originally emerged from a bat-borne virus. Research is still ongoing as to whether SARS-CoV-2 came directly from bats or indirectly through an intermediate host. So the Current evidence suggests that the virus spreads mainly between people who are in close contact with each other. So it can spread from an infected person's mouth or nose and small liquid particles when they cough, sneeze, speak, sing, breathe. And that's the main route of transmission. The virus can also spread in poorly ventilated or particularly crowded indoor settings where people tend to spend longer periods of time. So this is because aerosols can remain suspended in the air or travel further than just positional distance. There are now many thousand variants of SARS-CoV-2. The uh, World Health Organization has currently declared several variants of concerns, and I guess we'll come to those. So probably most people heard of the uh, Alpha variant. That was the original Kent variant, as it was also called, uh, the Beta variant, which emerged in South Africa. There was a gamma variant. Then of late, there was the Delta variant, which originally was described in India and until very recently was the predominant strain in the UK. And now, of course, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, there's Omicron, um, which was first described in Botswana and is now the predominant strain in the UK. Most people infected with the virus will experience mild or moderate respiratory symptoms and they'll recover without any special treatment. There is asymptomatic infection, but of course, as we all know, some people will become seriously ill and require medical attention. And those are particularly older people or those with underlying medical conditions, such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, and such like, and they might are more likely to develop serious illness. And I'm sure, Dr. Vidance, you'll have been at the cold face of seeing patients coming in with the more severe spectrum of disease. Can you just give us an impression about what it was like when the pandemic first began and and how things have progressed and changed as more treatments have become available? Yeah, so I guess 
at the start, it was very much about preparing how we would be able to provide intensive care to, I guess, at the time, an un unpredictable but potentially very large number of patients. So that involved getting additional equipment, working out where we could, what other areas within the hospital we could use to provide critical care, how we can use redeployed staff to help us when they don't have a lot of critical care experience and how we could still look after the non-COVID patients, you know, ideally keep the two pathways or streams separate to minimise or avoid nosocomial spread. And then actually relatively quickly, the patients kept coming in and we filled up pretty quickly. And, you know, we were at the time a 16-bedded intensive care unit had to expand into recovery and theatres. And I think at some point in April 2020, we had around maybe 18 or 20 ventilated COVID patients and another few on non-invasive support. And I think undoubtedly the clinical presentation over this time has changed with the treatments and I'm sure also with vaccination. I mean, clearly the vast majority of patients with COVID that come to critical care present with severe pneumonitis causing acute severe respiratory failure. But particularly in the first wave before we have seen the effects of targeted treatments and particular steroids, we were seeing quite a lot of systemic complications, a lot of pulmonary emboli and clots elsewhere, a lot of pro-inflammatory states, a lot of issues with renal failure. And sometimes patients were so prothrombotic that we were really struggling to keep the filters running. So it was quite, quite a different picture really at the start, whereas Later on in the pandemic, after we started giving dexamethasone to everybody with pneumonitis, I think it's fair to say that we've seen fewer patients that were that sick and less of that kind of pro-thrombotic and pro-inflammatory effect that led to multi-organ failure. Although, you know, unfortunately, we've still, even now with all the treatments, have had occasional ones who've been unlucky or profoundly immunosuppressed and who've ended up needing very intensive support for, for long periods of time. Yeah, I certainly have experienced a variety of different settings through the last year being in respiratory and then being in the ID department with yourself, Dr. Cook, and then intensive care and with yourself, Dr. Vidance, and I've seen the spectrum of disease. But as that time has gone on, the research and the evidence base has increased and I'd be interested just to get your both of your impressions about how that has changed the prognosis and the course of disease, and also referring to our, our more vulnerable patients who are immunosuppressed. Could you just highlight what we're talking about in terms of the, the research, Dr. Cock, talking about REMAP-CAP, talking about recovery, and any other trials that you know of? Sure. So in terms of the research that's come out over the last two years, I think it's unprecedented both how quickly trials were developed and set up and approved and how quickly they delivered results and that were turned immediately into clinical application. It's just astounding. And I think that was largely due to trials such as the recovery trial. So just for maybe those who aren't familiar with that, the recovery trial is a randomized control trial on patients hospitalized with COVID-19. 
it was launched in March 2020. So I guess, you know, that early on in the pandemic, we already had this trial launched, which is just astounding. That was a time when we had little to no treatments available. And we had a very large number of very sick people in hospital. That was really difficult, obviously, for the patients, but also for the relatives. And not to forget, very difficult for staff, because we're often used to being able to do some treatment, but at the time we really didn't have anything other than supportive treatment and oxygen. And the trial was rolled out across the NHS with a very large number of sites and patients taking part. And currently all three sites in Lothian, all the acute sites are taking part. There have been uh, close to now 50,000 participants and just over 190 active sites uh, recruiting to recovery trial, which is amazing. There are numerous drugs that have gone through recovery. So there have been several drugs which were touted as the, you know, wonder drugs for COVID-19. They've been found not to be beneficial, which is good because we could confidently stop using them or tell people not to use them. There are three drugs in particular that have been found to be beneficial to date. Fraco already alluded to steroids. There is an IL-6 inhibitor called tocilizumab, or another drug called cerilumab, also an IL-6 inhibitor. And we have neutralizing monoclonal antibodies. All of these drugs are shown to reduce mortality and have undoubtedly saved many lives, so completely changed the landscape of how we now deal with COVID-19 in hospital. The recovery trial is still ongoing and still is assessing several treatments. It currently, I think, has uh, four different treatment arms. So it's, it hasn't stopped and still ongoing. And in fact, it's expanding to influenza as well. Wow. I wasn't aware that it was, it was doing that with influenza. And I guess we could just touch on that. If you could, Dr. Clark, have you seen any influenza cases in the last few months or in the last year? <laughs> no, it's a good question, Jonathan. And I have personally seen one which is obviously very unusual, having now gone through two winters. So we have seen very little in terms of other viral respiratory disease. And I think particularly our pediatric colleagues would certainly say that of the, the previous season where you know, they would normally expect a large number of children admitted with RSV disease. And that obviously didn't happen. And you know, social distancing measures meant that we saw far fewer respiratory disease than we would normally expect, particularly during winter. It's interesting just about the way that obviously we're, we're stratifying our disease pathways, you know, red, amber, and um, there isn't really any green anymore, just about how and where we direct our patients, whether they come to yourselves, Dr. Cock and ID, or whether they go to ICU immediately, depending on how sick they are. Frank, I was just wondering if you could just Give your thoughts on how, how the assessment and how rapid assessment tools have helped us. Um, by that, I'm talking about ultra flow testing, but more specifically the Kefid testing for a rapid antigen test and how we can help exclude or include diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2 to help our patients. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I think the ability to get a fairly reliable test on hospital admission very quickly has been hugely helpful. Because, as I already said, one of the huge challenges was to try and separate the streams to prevent cross-infection and also commute spread of COVID. And I think that was 
that particularly relevant at times and I guess we're still in that time in, in many ways now where there's a lot of community transmission so you end up having a lot of patients with either atypical presentations or who present to hospital with other complaints or other pathologies but happen to be also COVID positive so you do really need to test everybody to avoid spreading COVID in hospital and because of course the, the huge risk is that you then infect patients who are vulnerable or immunocompromised and for whom treatment options may be limited and unfortunately in the West End we are relatively limited with side room facilities so it's not been possible to isolate everybody so so being able to do PCR on admission and getting a rapid result that allows us to make sure that the patient is looked after in the appropriate area has been hugely helpful. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I totally agree with that. That's certainly been a game changer in in order to be able to triage patients quickly, get diagnosis quickly. And, you know, weirdly, you know, healthcare should be a place of safety. And yet, of course, it's undoubtedly also been a place where many people got infected. You know, it's when many people come together in one place that is, becomes then really challenging. So having a rapid turnaround of diagnostics has been a big help. Yeah, certainly I've realized that when I'm working in the front door in the acute medical unit, it is so useful because patients don't present typically, as you say, Freika. I guess I just wanted to reflect on how lucky we are to have these resources available to us because we were having the episode with Dr. Chira and Dr. McKenzie from Malawi not too long ago. And it was just an amazing contrast or quite a striking contrast, I should say, about the differences in healthcare between different continents. And I was just wondering if you had any insight into that and your experiences through treating these patients, both of you. Well, I spoke to Mike McKenzie through the pandemic and sort of heard his experience. And, you know, we're a world removed from that. And as with a lot of things in terms of COVID, both in healthcare, but also in wider society, I think a lot of money was rightly or wrongly chucked at it with thinking about the consequences of all of that later. So just in comparison, I suppose, to Mike's experience in Malawi, healthcare, of course, in the UK is vastly more expensive. So to give you an idea, an admission to the ID unit in Edinburgh, I think, costs about £500 or so a day. And that diagnostics and treatment is on top of that, many of the treatments that we are currently given, while they've proven clinical efficacy, the cost efficacy has never been established. And, you know, we would do this for no other treatment. But for COVID, that's, you know, it, it just rapid decisions have to be taken. I don't have the figures for the UK, but I know the figures for the US. And obviously, the caveat is that, you know, healthcare in the US is vastly more expensive. But just to give you an idea, the cost for a non-complex admission to a US hospital, depending on state, is somewhere between forty to ninety thousand US dollars, and for a complex admission, somewhere between one hundred and thirty to four hundred thousand US dollars. So that just puts it into perspective what we can deliver in a well-to-do country versus the abilities that our colleagues in Malawi have. Yeah, it's it's striking, isn't it? And I guess. Coming with that, I'm keen to talk about not just the drugs that you've mentioned, tocilizumab and other drugs like molnupiravir, the neuroclid kids in the block like Ronopreve, 
but also vaccinations. So I'm just wondering if you could just touch on whether you've both of you seen any differences or new presentations or complications from patients who've received these treatments before we talk about vaccinations. You're referring to the new treatments in terms of side effects? or yeah. Side effects, how they've affected patients throughout their course of the disease and whether there's been anything that we've noticed after they've gone through their hospital journey. Yeah, and I, I think in, in, just in terms of, uh, f- first of all, I think, you know, they've all made a significant difference in, in terms of outcomes. So, but in terms of side effects, obviously giving steroids to most people will be aware of the side effects that steroids can cause and either unmasking diabetes or making existing diabetes worse um, certainly has been an issue. And we've been working very closely with our diabetes team to ensure that we get this right. So that's certainly been a, a noticeable issue. And um, the IL-6 inhibitors, so we were very worried about the immunosuppressive effects of those drugs, although I have to say that we didn't really experience that in clinical practice. And probably the difference is that in COVID, we give a one-off dose, while our rheumatology colleagues who are used to using these drugs in a different context would obviously give several doses on a continuous basis. We haven't really seen that. With regard to the monoclonal antibodies, Again, they are largely fairly well tolerated. We've seen a few transfusion-related reactions, but not very many. So on the whole, relatively well tolerated. And Dr. Vidance, before we, we really talk about just what, what the vaccines have done for us, have you seen any change in the population that have come in through acute medicine and critical care, depending on, on what or how many vaccines they've had now, whether they need these treatments that we've just been talking about? Uh, Yeah, no, we certainly have. So we've had far fewer patients certainly presenting very unwell and requiring ICU admission who have been fully vaccinated. There have been a few unlucky ones, unfortunately, but predominantly since the vaccine rollout, the patients who have required organ support and critical care for COVID-19 have been patients who are immunosuppressed or have significant other underlying health conditions. So either patients with solid organ transplants, some patients with leukemias, or patients who've been immunosuppressed, particularly again due to treatments for hematological malignancy. So unfortunately, those have remained at risk despite vaccinations, and we have seen some presenting severe pneumonitis and respiratory failure despite being vaccinated. But clearly for the majority of people, it's undoubtedly reduced the risk of becoming critically unwell massively. I think it's one of it's been your experience as well, Frauke. It's almost to some extent, if though we're talking now about a quite a different disease as to what we were experiencing in 2020, I think you alluded to, particularly on intensive care, seeing quite a lot of thromboembolism, your filters clotting, yeah. um, it really being quite difficult. There were people with acute kidney injury. You know, it's something that we don't actually see that much anymore. And quite a lot has changed since we obviously had vaccination. But I think it's also important to note that the virus has evolved and So what we're seeing now is really markedly different to what we saw 18 months ago. And that's, I think that's always worth bearing in mind when we're trying to apply findings from studies that were done 
a year or longer ago that were done on patients who haven't been vaccinated when largely a different variant was around. So all this has to be taken in context and sometimes with a fair degree of, you know, a pinch of salt as to how that applies to the current setting. So I think that's really useful just to get your thoughts and your views on, on how the disease has changed. And obviously, one of the things that we ask patients when they come in through the front door is whether they've been vaccinated and whether they've had all three vaccines or which vaccine they got. Do you have any advice on just what to ask and what are the key things that you as the ID physician wants to know with regards to vaccinations at the front door and just any top tips for the, the doctors that are assessing patients when they first come into hospital, Dr. Cobb? Yeah, so vaccine status is important. I think it's also important to know when those vaccines have happened, how long ago that was, because we do know that efficacy wanes over time. So it's important to know whether people have their booster, and that becomes even more important. People are immunosuppressed, so they should have had three doses, uh, primary course. So that's important. I think other than that, at the front door, I think I would really listen to the individual patient. And I'm sure Frauke shares that there are some patients who might not appear particularly unwell on admission. And it's important really to tease out what their normal level of function is and whether they are, for example, more short of breath than usual for them. I really found those mortality scores and morbidity scores quite useful in trying to identify those patients that are of higher risk of becoming more unwell. And for some patients, even though they you know, haven't really hit any of the sort of markers yet, a brief observational period can be useful to just ensure that they're not going the wrong way, particularly if they fall into those high risk categories. I think the other thing I would say to, you know, particularly the juniors at the front door, try and familiarize yourself with the ever-changing guidelines. I know it's really hard because they're changing all the time and the available treatment or to some extent the evidence behind them. But I think it's it, people also have to be mindful that these are just guidelines and that each patient requires an individualized approach. So no two patients necessarily fit in the same box. So having an idea about some of the trials behind the guidance can be useful when making decisions for individual patients. So, for example, this, is, this particularly applies to the uh, perhaps somewhat contentious issue of anticoagulation. So just be mindful, you know, who you're treating and why. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to touch on the scoring system and then maybe some sort of unique situations where we were talking about when or what to use in terms of treatment. I assume you're referring to the ESSERIC 4C mortality score. Was that right, Dr. Cog? Mm, that's right. And just for our listeners, what is that and how have you been using that? And, and have you been using that as well in ICU, Dr. Vidans? Um, so it's, it's a score that was developed to assess and predict the risk from a, a large observational study in the UK. I think it's been more helpful at the front door, actually, as Ollie says, to predict the risk of deterioration. Once, you know, once they are critically unwell with organ failure and end up in ICU, it doesn't really add huge amount and I, I think certainly understanding the risk factors to be able to predict a little bit better how quickly somebody might deteriorate has been helpful and I agree with what Ollie said about sometimes 
even if a patient looks well, a period of observation can be very helpful. And I would certainly not be keen to discharge somebody unless I'm certain that they don't, you know, desaturate on mobilizing, etc. Because it can be a little bit difficult to spot the ones that, you know, maybe look okay when they're at rest and have reasonable saturations. But as soon as you walk them down the corridor, then it becomes clear that actually the oxygenation is not normal. But yeah, I mean, I think the risk scores are helpful to know who's at higher risk of deterioration. I think the key message that I'm getting is that whilst COVID obviously is or was one virus, the disease spectrum is very broad. Is that fair to say to the both of you? And is there anything that you would reflect on now as sort of a more of a general tip for or advice for the junior doctor assessing a patient who comes with symptoms and signs of COVID now? Just to be aware of when making these assessments, obviously we've touched on desaturation on walking. I think certainly I would be always more concerned than anybody who's immunosuppressed because they are clearly at higher risk of developing complications and pneumonitis, etc. And I would have a much lower threshold for admitting them. I guess it's, as you've already alluded to, it's kind of changed again now because we now have a variant that is less severe in the majority of patients and we still have quite high community transmission. So we, again, as we are perhaps at the start in a situation where a lot of patients present either with atypical symptoms or with incidental COVID, I guess that means that we clearly still have to test everybody to minimise low communal spread. But it also means that if somebody is admitted with COVID and presents in a slightly unusual way, just make sure you're still thinking about other pathologies, other infections or any other illnesses that may be contributing to their presentation. Because obviously, you know, they, they may have COVID, but they may also have a surgical problem or a bacterial infection. Certainly, we, we've had surgical patients coming into our red zone because they're febrile, but they may have tested positive for COVID or there is a suspicion that they have COVID. Has that affected how the cohort of patients that have come into ICU have been dealt with in terms of surgical patients or medical patients or an overlap between them, Dr. Vidans? Not hugely. I mean, they're all tested obviously in terms of you know where they're looked after within critical care in terms of what we've seen I think at the start of the pandemic we definitely saw a number of patients who had COVID with sometimes mild sometimes quite severe pneumonitis but also had intra-abdominal pathology perforation of gastric ulcers for instance or I remember somebody with a lower GI perforation as well but I think you know, that's not a complication of COVID. That just reflects that at the time, the level of community transmission was so high that some people unfortunately ended up with COVID as well as a separate unrelated pathology. Yeah. I think just in view of the last two years, I'd just like to ask for your your thoughts on just, is there anything that you thought has been notably useful for clinicians um, assessing these patients at the front door at the and just in terms of where we're at now, is there anything that you would advise our junior doctors just in terms of our, our sort of take-home messages from this podcast today about what we can do and what we should do when we're dealing with patients who present with this disease? I think 
what's clearly been quite challenging is the amount of information. And Ollie has already said it is clearly important to try and you know be up to date and familiar with all the guidelines. You've been very lucky at the Western because we have a regional infectious diseases unit and we have Ollie who summarized the evidence for us in guidelines. So it's made it a lot easier to keep up to date. But I think it is hugely helpful to understand the risk factors so you know which patients are at higher risk of complications. And if then there is uncertainty around which treatments should be offered or they're not responding, then obviously seek specialist advice. Yeah, I think certainly what I realise is that misinformation or disinformation can be very dangerous, certainly in the era of social media. And I was just wondering if we could just sort of reflect on that. Dr. Cock, just before we wrap up, we were just hoping to find just hear some of your, your final take-home messages on the background of, of all we've talked about and echoing Dr. Vadance again, really just about your key top tips for clinicians who are assessing patients coming in with symptoms and signs that have made them present to hospital. I think the other thing, in addition to what I said earlier, is be mindful that it's a team effort. I think what we experienced in this multidisciplinary working is of benefit, certainly for the patients, but also for those who are, you know, whose name it is above the patient's bed. We have often invited several teams to help us with our patients. I've already mentioned the diabetic team, but we also have the palliative care team who at times used to do a daily ward round on our ward. You know, we had daily uh, meetings with intensive care. Medicine of the elderly team has been very proactive on our ward. So I think it's important that people don't work in silos and realize that this is a, a joint effort in trying to deliver the best care for our patients. Yeah, very much so. And I think that's that summed things up nicely. I'd just like to say thank you so much, both of you, for your time today. And I am very thankful for your wisdom and expertise. And before we wrap things up, is there anything else that you'd like to add just to help our listeners summarise this in their in their own mind about what we've just talked about? I don't know. I mean, you know, this is a... I think it remains very much an active field. And I guess the reason we're still talking about it two years later is because it still hasn't left our lives, isn't it? It's affecting all of us. We are healthcare professionals, so naturally very close to the subject, but I would say, you know, pretty much affected everybody in society, whether you are working in a shop, in an office, have your own business, I think it's affected everybody. And so I think it's very hard to know where this will go in the future and how long this will become. It will be the sort of the main topic of conversation and will dominate um, our, our lives. I think we're probably just now moving into a stage and, you know, many people have made, made many predictions and I'm sure I, I'm wrong, but I think we, we have some hope of entering a stage where we're learning to live with this disease in some form or another. And vaccination certainly plays a large role into a role in this. And I would imagine that we might have annual booster vaccines. Who knows? I think what we still though see, and I think I would really like to make that point that vaccination, while 
I guess we are all in agreement how important it is. We certainly don't see that necessarily reaching everybody and vaccine coverage is not necessarily as high as we would like it to be, particularly in some of the patients that we're admitting to hospitals. So reaching everybody and building that confidence that vaccination is the way forward to get us out of it is really important. You alluded to the episode with our colleagues in Malawi. And I think speaking of global health, vaccine inequality is, I think, one of the main stumbling blocks for the world to get beyond this pandemic. The virus doesn't stop at borders and new variants uh, probably will continue to emerge. So we really must ensure that all countries and all people across the world have access to vaccination and get the required financial and logistical support where that's needed. So we need to really think outside our own country here. Thank you so much for that, um, Dr. Koch and Dr. Vaidans. And once again, thank you for listening and thank you for your time. And if you do want to listen to that episode, then it's on the Clinical Conversations list and available on the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website. Once again, thank you very much, Dr. Oliver Koch and Dr. Fraka Vaidans. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Johnson.